As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Car Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin, and I'm joined by Kurt Guerin, producer of the show as well, right, Kurt? That's right. Uh, she's doing double duty again. Today, I think we've got a topic that both of us can, and we'll probably have a lot to talk about, I think. Uh, there's, there's 10 really unusual, unlikely, weird, strange, whatever you want to call them, race cars. And, and there's been a list compiled, of course, there's lists all over the place. So this is one list, I should say. There's been a list compiled by a, uh, a place called drivingline.com. And they had an unusual one, like a, a different one from others that I've seen, which I thought was intriguing. So I chose that one to kind of follow along with. And then I think we're going to add our own notes because there's not a whole lot of material uh, on each page. You know, it's kind of like one of those, uh, it's like a slideshow almost, really, when you look at it online. You know, below each photo is, is just a little bit of information, but not a lot of information. So, you know, when uh, when I when I saw the list, I thought, well, I can add something to this and, and make it really worthwhile for our audience and, you know, something that they'd be interested in listening to and, and maybe even digging into on their own and, and learning a little bit more about each one of these cars because they are unique and they are strange and wonderful and unusual and, you know, all of the, uh, you know, all the ways you can describe uh, a race car that probably shouldn't be out there on the race course. <laughs> and that's maybe the best way to put it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what did you, just just real quick, and we're not going to really dig into this yet. I got a few more things I want to talk to you about before we start today's episode, but when you saw this list that I sent over to you, this, um, this these 10 unusual cars, did you have any kind of initial uh, reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, the look of a lot of the cars is, is unique. I, when I looked at it, I, did, I went in with no preconceived notions, though, and I tried to take each one and look at the era in which it raced, yes. and it, things began to make a lot more sense when you look at the cars in the, the landscape of racing at the time. Could have been ahead of its time in some ways, right? In some ways. But, but other cars, when you look at it, you're like, I can't imagine... At that at that time, seeing that car on the racetrack, yeah. it would be so unusual that it would be the one that would get all the attention 
Uh, you know, even if it wasn't the pole sitter, even if it wasn't the winner of the race, of course, or yeah, you know, yeah. even if nothing really spectacular happened with it, just the fact that it's on the track, it makes it fascinating and unique in some way. So I think it's a good list, and, and we'll definitely get to that. You know, let's get into some of these uh, these these least likely and weird and unusual race cars. As the, the author of this article says, his name is uh, Benjamin Hunting, and he is from, uh, he's a writer from a, a site called Driving Line. Dot com, and that's the list that we're going to follow. But I tell you, we're going to add a lot to this list. And as Benjamin says, you know, racing gets weird sometimes. It really does get unusual and, and strange. And um, we all know this. We all know that, you know, racers in a particular series, whatever series it may be, are all about bending the rules. And especially, we've seen this especially in NASCAR, right? Yeah. We've seen it so many times in NASCAR with so many different colorful characters and people that, uh, you know, just right in your face about it too you know like i like if it's not specifically in, you know, exactly in the rule book like that i'm going to do it and then you know the next race has changed you know it's yeah. the rules in the rule book and now you can't do that so they have to change their tactic and and it's kind of this uh, this cat and mouse back and forth you know play the game type thing that they do and and as fans we love to watch this right we love to we love to see the you know the characters that are that are like a smoky eunuch or um you know uh, carol shelby or any of those guys you know that were really you know just exciting to watch. AJ Foyt, whoever it happens to be, you know, it's just a you know, it creates it creates characters. Sure does. And, you know, larger than life characters at, at the racetrack, and one of the things that that results from this is unusual car design or car technology or just um, tactics or you know whatever it happens to be. But these happen to be uh, the whole the whole deal, like the complete package. These are unusual cars. They now again. Some of them do have just unusual technology, but along with that, you know, form has to follow the function, right? So right. Um, this this makes, um, you know, the, the vehicle look weird, and you know, because they're trying this new technology, it makes it look unusual on the track, and that's what makes it stand out. And sometimes, as we said, you know, these are the cars that get all the attention, whether or not they're t- on, the, on the pole position or win the race or, or don't even place at all. If they make one lap, everybody's kind of, you know, ooing and on over that one car. Or, you know, laughing at it. Maybe they're laughing at it. This one isn't on the list, but a modern example of some of these types of cars would be the Delta Wing. Oh, yeah. That was an IMSA sports car race car. Yeah. I don't think they're racing it anymore. Very unusual car. So that kind of gives you an idea, if you're familiar with a Delta Wing, what we're about to dive into. Yeah, if you're not, take a look online. I mean, just do a quick Google search and you'll be able to find the Delta Wing. But uh, that is a really... Strange design, especially, I mean, look at it next to any other car on the course at the time. Completely unusual, a really strange car, but that's exactly what we're talking about. And as the, you know, it's cars that, uh, as Benjamin says here, you know, that defy convention, and in a lot of cases, <laughs> the boundaries of good taste. And I, I agree, sometimes that's the case, but, you know, they all have uh, something likable about them as well. You know, there's something about rooting for the underdog or something about, you know, cheering for, you know, the guy that uh, is trying something new. Hey, why not? Um, there's been a lot of, again, a lot of people that, uh, a lot of people that enjoy doing that, and they do so behind the uh, the wheel of misfits, like number one on our list here, which is the Cadillac Le Monstre, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a French race car, and it's a 1949 car actually, uh, which is competing in 1950, and I'll I'll describe what's going on here, but. Um, you really need to take a look at this car online. You need to you need to have a, an image of what we're talking about here because there is some unusual bodywork going on, right? Definitely, it's wind tunnel tested. Yeah, uh, it, and for the time, that's that's pretty uh, 
pretty unique, I would imagine, for oh, a race for a road race car anyway. Well, for any car, I think yeah. at that time. I don't think I don't think they were doing a lot of um of wind tunnel testing back in that time. I mean, I, I know that, you know, of course the Wright brothers had built their, you know, their little wind tunnel and there were there were, you know, to test their designs, so very, you know, like the tabletop version and then later a bigger version, but then and I think that, you know, of course there were there were some wind tunnels around. There were. And and I know that manufacturers did use them and they, you know, there's the Later, I think, I don't know about, gosh, I can't remember when the Chrysler Airflow was built, but course manufacturers use wind tunnel testing, and they do now a lot, mm-hmm. and so do race teams, of course. I think when you see a car that looks like this from this era, the wind tunnel is almost always to blame. <laughs> to blame, <laughs> yeah. Because they, that's, they're designing the car based on that data that they get from the test. Yeah, good That's point. why it looks how it does. Yeah, Flat good. sides. Yeah, yeah. It's a very unusual looking car to me. You know what it looks like to me? And I, I, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, believe it or not. I mean, I, I kind of grew up in that era and I think that was the first movie I ever saw like out, you know, with my parents mm-hmm. like at a theater back in, you know, the, the late 70s. To me, the Cadillac Series 61 that this is built from or based on, this 1949, not the, not the streetcar, but this car, this, uh, this La Monstra, Looks an awful lot like the Land Speeder from uh, from Star Wars. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's not the same color. It's not that copper color or anything, but it does have a lot of similarity to the Land Speeder. Yeah, and it looks like it's almost hovering above the ground. You can't really see the wheels underneath it. It's a, such an unusual it's design. Funny. It's very, very strange. Very cool now, uh, but but imagine seeing this in nineteen. 19- 50 on the racetrack in Le Mans, because that's where it raced. Briggs Cunningham was the one who took this car, and again, underneath, it's a 1949 Cadillac Series 61. There's a couple of cars that he actually brought. He brought a a factory-spec, manual-equipped Series 61 coupe, and the other one was this this one that they had designed in the wind tunnel, and this is the, the Le Monstre. Uh, which means, of course, the monster, and for good reason. I mean, when you see it, I guess. <laughs> um, but the the uh, French, I think, dubbed it that. But this car had a uh, 331 cubic inch V8 that had five carburetors, and it, it says it ran an eventful race, burying itself in the sandbank at one point and requiring Cunningham to leave the driver's seat and dig it out. And then despite all of that, he finished 11th in the race. Now, isn't that unusual? I mean, and now think about getting out of the car, having to dig it out of a sandbank, get it back on the course, get back in, racing again, you know, for the, the remainder of the 24 hours, whatever whatever it is, and still finishing 11, in 11th place. That's impressive. It is impressive. It's impressive that the car survived that kind of a lick. Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, it's a decent finish, I guess, for, for a vehicle, yeah. you know, that did something like that. Usually, you know, we've heard of these unusual cases where a driver will be in a race and they'll, you know, they, they call it spin and win. So they've had a spin out, they didn't hit a wall or anything like that, and yet they win the race somehow. It's very unusual. It happens, but it's very unusual. But this is and not quite the same. I mean, finished 11th place, but that's a long race and Digging out of the sand, that's something that you don't see anybody do, you know, and still win the race yeah. by any means. So. doesn't look like it would take much to get this thing stuck in the sand. Though. Yeah, no, exactly. And I do have a little bit of an update on this one. Uh, not much, but just a little bit. As of 2017, and I, I have a feeling these have moved, but as of 2017, or at least in 2017, uh, the car was on display at a place called the Revs Institute in Naples, Florida, along with a collection of other Cadillac race cars from the 2017 wins at both the Rolex 24 in Daytona and the 12 Hours of Sebring. And, um, you know, the title, of course, 
the title wins that they won for the, those seasons as well. So this is a group, it was within a group of, of other Cadillac race cars from the modern era, which I, I would have loved to have seen this in Naples, Florida. That's not too far of a drive from us here in Atlanta. We could have made it. I didn't have any idea it was there, nor do I think I probably would have driven all the way to Naples. But if I was in the area, I would have uh, I would have definitely checked it out because how often are you going to see, you know, a grouping of Cadillacs that goes from 1950 all the way through 2017 in, in race car form. I mean, that's yeah. pretty unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one on the list, number two, the Chaparral 2J. Now, this one is from around 1970, and I do want to tell you that we have already done the full Chaparral story on car stuff a long time ago. We did this back in 2011, so if you want to get some info on that and uh, about, you know, that whole thing and a lot about the Can-Am series and, you know, the, the cars that competed in that, you can, you know, check that out if you want to. Uh, you can go to carstuffshow.com and check that out. It's actually, it's a, it's an interesting idea here that with the uh, the Chaparral 2J. Uh, the idea is, of course, we've talked about so much about this, but downforce on a vehicle at speed, right? Yeah. And it's how important it is to keep the car stuck to the track and how important aerodynamics are, positive aerodynamics are, in that keeping it down instead of making, you know, acting like a wing and taking off, because we've seen a lot of cars that have done that, unfortunately. So the idea behind the Chaparral 2J was that they were going to use something called active aero in order to do that. Now, active aero had a different meaning back then. Um, a little bit of a different meaning back then than it does now. Now what we typically see are movable wings, you know, that uh, that adjust at speed and, and kind of change the airflow over the vehicle in order to produce more downforce at, you know, when it's necessary and where it's necessary. This one, however, was <laughs> able to generate, this is the crazy thing, able to generate something like, like uh, was it 1.5 Gs of downforce regardless of whatever speed it was traveling. So, yeah, you have to imagine this. So let's say that the car is sitting still on a scale, and it's not moving one bit, and it weighs, let's say, 1,000 pounds. All right, so that's easy enough to, just an easy round number to deal with. We flip on this giant fan that's in the back of the car that's run by a two-stroke motor, and what it does is it sucks all the air out from underneath the car and pulls it down <laughs> to the, the road surface, right? It's it's driving it straight down, not any direction, just straight down. The engine is doing nothing but pulling, and the fan is pulling the air out, pulling it down. It's like so, a vacuum. Exactly right. So you flip the switch, and this thing starts up, and the vacuum starts up, and suddenly the scale will read, or it will appear <laughs> that the car that the car weighs fifteen hundred pounds. And that's a that's a, a crude way to put that. And I don't even know if that's true or not. But what I'm saying is, it will pull down with the amount of force equal to one and a half times its own weight as it travels down the track. Now, I mean, again, it could be sitting still and do the same thing. That's why I use that example. But um, that's probably a terrible way to put that. I hope an engineer doesn't call in and say that's that's completely wrong. You, you just you screwed everything up. But, You're just saying right now that it but, probably is wrong. Well, I, I kind of am. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm backpedaling a little bit because I'm... <laughs> I'm terrible at this type of thing, but but that's my understanding of it anyway. Is that is that the car effectively as it travels down? That's the goal, right? Is to to make it heavier. Like as it, as you go faster, yeah. it pushes down on the tires more than it does when it's sitting still. And this car, no matter what speed you're going, even like you, you're stopped, it's pushing down on the tires with like one and a half times its own weight which is crazy to think about. I mean, yeah. and so imagine the advantage that a driver has when they're driving this car through a corner i mean it's almost as if you could take away not not that you can completely take away but you could you could almost imagine a driver with less skill being able to corner harder than a driver with a lot of skill 
uh, because the faster you go, the more this thing creates downforce. I mean, it's 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 a ridiculous amount of downforce in this car, yeah. which is really, really an interesting thing. And I think there's probably a, a t- full topic for a podcast here. I'm not sure if we discussed the Can-Am series on, on car stuff or not, but maybe we can do that. But later in 1978, there's another kind of related car that I want to talk about. In 1978, there was the Brabham BT46B, which was called the Fan Car. And it was designed by a guy named Gordon Murray. And it would use kind of like a similar downforce principle. This is the F1 series. It would use a, a similar principle, you know, for downforce, but it was power. The, the, this is the other part of this one, is that this one was powered by the car's engine itself. So the faster the car went, the more downforce it would create. So um, again, this one even even more than the other one, I would guess. Uh, that suction effect, you know, around the corners was just unre- unreal. I mean, you're able to corner inside, outside, you know, right down the, you know, the perfect line, wherever you want to, you wouldn't have any problem. Everybody else would have problems. You wouldn't have any problems at all. So um, it did remove a little bit of that. Now, one thing interesting I thought was uh, the the lead driver for the car during that era for Brabham um, was, uh, was Nicky Lauda. Uh, he was the Austrian driver at the time. And, of course, there's also another Brazilian driver, you know, another co-driver, and it was Nelson Piquet. So they both got some time behind the wheel, a couple of big names in F1 and uh, and worth mentioning anyway. Um, number three on the list, highly unusual car. And um, you know, this is one that I bet a lot of people do kind of laugh at, but this is the Lada Granta. I hope I'm saying that right, the Lada Granta. Now, I know I'm getting the Lada part right, but I hope the Granta is right, or East Granta. It's granted. I don't know, but a lot of a lot of Americans will laugh at this because uh, the Lada is not necessarily uh, the best car. It's a Russian brand of car, and um, you know they make a lot of street cars in Europe. They make a ton of them, actually. They make, um, gosh, I want to say it's in, it's in the millions. I mean, they've been making them since 2011. I think they're still making them, but it's built in Russia, in the Ukraine, Egypt, and even in Kazakhstan is where this thing is built. Of course, you know they're going to take one of their their cars to compete in uh, the World Touring Car Championship. Of course, why not? Why wouldn't they, right? But they chose the Lada Granta, which is a, an unusual choice, and a lot of people kind of laughed at it. But it first competed in 2012, and it has a different engine. Of course, it has a turbocharged four cylinder engine, and it has 380 horsepower. That is not the Lada Granta that you're going to get if you buy it out of the dealership. You're going to get a 1.6 liter eight valve inline four engine, or Possibly, if you if you went if you upgraded, you can get a sixteen valve inline four as well. Number four on the list is uh, ooh, it's an unusual one, really unusual. This is the Citron ID nineteen. And okay, before we start even talking about where this one appeared, because this one has some history, um, we did do a, a couple of car stuff episodes on this one too. If you want the entire Citron story, part one and part two, it was done in November of 2014. It's got an extensive history on uh, you know the whole thing, but this is the maybe one of the craziest ones on the list for me. Really? What do you think? Do you agree? Um, maybe. Okay. There's gonna... there's some there's some little nuance that makes it not as crazy to me, in my opinion. Okay. But... All right. Yeah, to me, to me, this is one of the more fascinating ones just because of where it appeared and, and how this would be even possible today. And I don't think this, it wouldn't be possible, obviously. But the Citron ID19, if you don't know what that is, that is a, uh, it's part of the D series of cars. Um, the ID meant that simply that it had a manual transmission and a cloth interior and the DS version of this car, the Citron DS, um, had leather seats and uh, something called a Citromatic transmission. So it was an automatic, but had no clutch. It had a, a shift lever, but no clutch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the D, I'm sorry, the ID and the DS 
are kind of along the same appearance, but different, um, you know, trim packages and things like that and, and options. And between 1955 and 1975, they built almost, well, they built 1.4 million of these cars. So a lot of them were out there. However, <laughs> early on in the run of these cars, again, they started in 1955. In 1958, in Riverside, California, an ID-19, or actually a pair of ID-19s, ran in a NASCAR race. It was a road course, though. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's, that's the thing that makes it a little bit easier to believe, because NASCAR was a bit different back then. It was a lot different back then, apparently. I mean, if you, if you know what a Citroen ID-19 looks like, you know, from 1958, take a look at one online if you don't, and imagine that running in NASCAR. That's really hard to believe in, on a road course, on a, a oval, whatever. But you're right. That is a road course. Uh, this was the old Riverside track, and it ran in 1958 as part of the Crown America 500. Get this. It finished. Uh, here's, here's the finishing. They both finished with inside, inside the top 20. They finished 18th and 19th overall, but that means that in their class, they were first and second place. So a Citroen has won a NASCAR race yep. with a, get this, a 70-horsepower engine. These things had 70 horsepower. That's it. Now, look at what they're running today and, you know, like the horsepower and, you know, the, the appearance of them and, the, you know, the, how closely closely they're matched, how they, how they look. This, you know, they look essentially the same, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's variation between manufacturers, but it's such, just such an unusual thing. I mean, it's, it's funny that they would do this. And, and I hadn't put this together, but I, I, the, the author did. They used it kind of as a punchline. In the, uh, um, what is it? The, Talladega um, Nights. Yeah, Talladega Nights. Yep. That's the one, the, the legend of Ricky Bobby, right? Yeah. Yeah, they used it <laughs> as, a, as kind of a punchline because the uh, the challenger is the French guy, right? He's the yeah. Perrier driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Sasha Baron Cohen, is that who it was? Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah it was very actor. funny. So it, it was kind of a, a funny thing, but yeah, I, I hadn't you put that together, those two things together until this point, but I think that's really funny. That's, that's clever, yeah. All right, number five here on the list is uh, one that most people can picture in their mind. At least most of our listeners can picture in their mind, I would think. This is the Volvo 850 wagon that was in the British Touring Car Championship. This one, to me, is is iconic. Oh, I, I completely agree. And how it came about is really, really unusual. There's a long, long story that I'm not going to bore you with, but... Um, it raced in the 1994 season of the British Touring Car Championship. And again, there's a fascinating story behind why it raced in there. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can give you just the highlights right now. But again, I bet that most of our, our listeners can picture this in their, in their mind. Yeah. Um, just, just close your eyes. And if you're not driving, close your eyes. Imagine what this car looks like. And, and typically, you'll think of this car going around a corner on two wheels. And that's what the photographers just loved about this car is that it was always on two wheels. The thing was uh, very top-heavy, of course. But it had some other advantages, or maybe it wasn't advantages. It was just it didn't have the disadvantages that you would think that it would have. Uh, This was a car that, that actually performed just as well as the 850 sedan did. And they didn't really know that until... There was a shortage at the factory. So here's, here's how all this goes down. So you, you might wonder, okay, why, why the Volvo wagon was chosen, right? So it's, a, it's, again, long story, but it's a good one. I'll shorten it. So Volvo hadn't raced since about 1986 when it was in something called the European Touring Car Cup, which was called the ETCC, and that went defunct, right? So that was gone. It was already gone at this point. But 1986 was the last time... Volvo was on the world racing stage in that in that type of series. And then in the early 1990s, Volvo's senior vice president, his name I can't remember right now, I'll, I'll find it, but um, decided that it was time to return to racing and to kind of pep up the brand um, that was at this point 
better known for safety. You know, they had all these safety innovations. Yeah. They still do. I mean, they're, they're still a brand known for safety, which is not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. Uh, but they wanted to kind of, you know, I don't know, spice it up a little bit, right? I mean, it's time to, you know, get back on the racetrack and, and show what we can do as well. And so a Swedish performance company was chosen. It was it was called Stefansson Automotive or Stefansson Automotive. I hope I'm not pronouncing that totally wrong. But initially, they wanted the 850 sedan, of course. So, you know, they went to the, the – the story is they went to the factory to pick up the cars that they were supposed to pick up. And there's a shortage of the 850 sedan bodies at the time. They were supposed to go to customers or, you know, they were they just simply didn't have them. They weren't building them, you know, fast enough to be able to, to provide them for the racing team or the racing effort. And the only bodies that were available were um, were the wagons. And they decided, well, let's take the wagons. Let's just do it. We, we've got an you know, assignment. We have, we have a short amount of time to build these race cars. We're going to take these wagons. We're going to do it. You know, it's going to be unusual. But they want us to build them. <laughs> One of the it. best ideas ever. So they find out that, uh, as it turns out, um, you know, the, these sedans actually ha- there's there's no disadvantage to running the wagon versus the sedan aerodynamically. Well, if you think about the Volvo back in the. 90s how boxy it was anyway oh, it doesn't sure. doesn't surprise me one bit you have a long <laughs> flat roof and maybe more weight over the rear of the yeah car? i think there's more there's more weight and it's it's distributed differently for the wagon of course yeah uh which is the why you see it on two wheels an awful lot i mean i know top those, heavy and, yeah, yeah those cars were you know they, they often were on two wheels anyway but the wagon more so than the others and you know the, the, here's the the really interesting thing is that because it was captured so many times like that, you know, cornering hard, you don't expect a wagon to be doing this. And plus, it looks incredible. I mean, it's it's all, you know, uh, decaled up, you know, like a race car. It looks like a race car. It's really a, a, a cool-looking vehicle. If you're a wagon fan, you fall in love with this immediately. I, I did. I'm, I'm a huge wagon fan anyway. Mm-hmm. Sad that there are no, you don't find wagons anymore. There's a few out there, and I've been seeing them in commercials recently. But, um this this vehicle this uh, this particular vehicle was probably photographed more than any other car in the series during that season than than which was a, just a, a boon for Perfect, Volvo, for Volvo, for Volvo. Yeah. yeah i mean it it was a, it was an unbelievable stroke of genius on their part and they didn't even know it was really going to happen like the, the company didn't know it the uh the company that was you know building them the uh the Stephenson Automotive the performance company they they didn't know what was going to happen either they figured they were going to be ridiculed and i think initially they were they were kind of laughed at but they actually it's a happy accident. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> I think that they said that the the best that they uh, they finished was something like fourteenth and fifteenth in the uh, in that one season. But again, one season. Again, we can probably all picture this car. It was on posters. It's you know some people probably still have it as their you know their desktop image saver or whatever you call it, the desktop you know image. So it's a cool looking car. If you haven't ever seen it, you know look it up. The Volvo eight fifty wagon uh, from the. British Touring Car Championship, or BTCC. And uh, you know what? We're going to have the rest of our list in just a moment after the break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. 
We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and I'm your host, Scott Benjamin. And I am Kurt Guerin. Kurt's holding in there for number six. I know, you're, you're, you're chomping at the bit for number six, oh, yeah. I, can, I can tell. Oh, yeah. All right, this one, that's, that's an unusual one, too. These are all unusual. These are, that, well, that's why they're on the list, isn't it? <laughs> uh, this is the Mercedes-Benz 300 SEL AMG. Now, a couple of things make this really unique. Now, this one, well, for one, it's a limousine. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. if you look at it, it doesn't look like it should be on the racetrack. It doesn't. But I think the more that I see this one, the more it grows on me. Yeah. I, I initially didn't necessarily like it. It's a, it's a fire engine red AMG uh, sedan. Uh, I guess a limousine. It's a longer version of the car anyway, which is really weird. This one competed, um, raced in the 24-hour race at Spa in 1971. And uh, this was, uh, this, I find, this is crazy. This is the the first race car that was ever built by AMG. Yeah. Which, when you look in back, I mean, I mean, you see a ton of Mercedes on the roads right now, at least we do here in Atlanta, that have the AMG tag on it. Mm-hmm. A lot of AMG cars. AMG has been around for 52 years now. They've been around since 1967, and this was the first race car that they ever created. Now, I know that they were working on other things, you know, for, uh, for Mercedes, Mercedes-Benz at the time. It's kind of their performance division, if you want to call it that, or the performance house. Um, but it is a full-size sedan. I, I, maybe a limo is... I, I've seen it called limo some places, but full-size sedan is, is probably a better way to say it. 
Um, the car actually won its class and was second overall in the race that it was in. Um, we're talking about, again, the, the Spa 24-hour race in, in 1971. Huge horsepower, 428 horsepower, 448 pound-feet of torque, and that comes from um, an engine. I think I, I want to say that this was an, a bored-out version of the already giant V8 that they had under the hood, uh, which was either, and I can't, I can't determine this, I, it was either a 6.3-liter engine or a 6.6-liter engine that they then bored out to be 6.8 liters. Uh, still a V8, of course. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't change when you bore out an engine, of course. Um, but it has some unusual things. It has like a it has a wood dash. Um, it's kind of like a, a sleeper car, I guess, if you want to put it that way. You know, I mean, it doesn't look like outside of the decals. If it didn't have all that, I mean, it's it's a little bit jacked up in the rear. It's got you know rally lights in the front. If you took all that off of there, the the decals, the lights. It would just look like a sedan on the road. It really wouldn't be anything, you know, much different. I mean, the tires are a little bit wider. Sure, I get it. But it's just like taking whatever car you had on the street and throwing it on the racetrack and, and you know, putting a number on it and calling it a race car. But, yeah, it still has the chrome trim on it, and it, it just doesn't look like a race car. It doesn't yeah. look like it would be very fast well, either. They called it the Red Pig, I mean, if that says anything. So it's the, uh, the Mercedes-Benz 300 SEL AMG, or if you want to search the Red Pig, uh, you'll find an, an image or a photo of this car. Now, I found something really unusual, and it had a, uh, a tragic end, and, and it's not probably what you think. This is really unusual. So there's a lot of replicas out there. All right, so um, replicas of the original are available. They're, you know, you get, of course, they're at museums and, you know, People are building them, that kind of thing, and they're exact replicas. They're they're very they're very detailed, right down to you know exactly the way it was. Um, but the original, unfortunately, the the red pig that was raced was sold to an aircraft company, and <laughs> this is according to a site called MotorOne.com. And um, because it was one of the fastest cars in the world at the time, you know, from one of the fast, it was huge horsepower again. It was perfect, as they say, for testing landing gear at speed by dropping the landing gear through holes that they cut into the floorboards of the car. No! So they would drive this thing down the track at speed and then drop the landing gear through these holes, which would just tear the hell out of the car. I mean, every time they did it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the shock that must have gone through and, you know, just the, the, the torque and, the you know, just tearing the metal and everything. Unfortunately, it didn't take, a you know, very long, but this thing eventually just became such a total wreck that they couldn't even use it for that. So um, the original Red Pig uh, met quite a, a strange end. I don't think there's a lot of cars that have a history like that or, you know, an end like that, especially race cars. Usually they either crash or they end up in a museum. Yeah. You know, one of the two. Especially one that, I mean, this is a historic car. AMD's well, first race car. Yeah, but then, here's the this thing, is then, you know, it was yeah. just another car to them, you know, yeah. on the way. But, yeah, look, looking back, anybody would give anything to have that car, you know, the original car. Yeah, for sure. It'd be, it'd be a great museum piece, or even the factory would probably want to buy that back mm-hmm. for a couple million bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, little did they know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, next one on the list, and I don't think we need to spend too much time on this one. I, I don't know a whole lot about it, as a matter of fact. It's it's another series that we probably need to dig into. This is uh, number seven. It's the Toyota Prius GT. And you might laugh throwing a GT at the end of Prius, but until <laughs> you uh, until you see... The Prius GT, uh, you don't understand. I mean, this is this is the Super GT Prius, uh, which debuted in the Super GT series in 2012. It took the uh, the class pole position uh, in the GT 300 class, and then took sixth place at the 2012 Fuji GT 500 kilometer race. Um, it is, as you may have already guessed, not your typical 
Toyota Prius. So this one is uh, still a hybrid. It still has a what has a larger lithium-ion battery, as you might expect. But the biggest difference is that it has a, uh, a mid-mounted 3.4-liter V8 engine <laughs> that produces 300 <laughs> horsepower. Of course, it's, uh, it's naturally aspirated. It's not a turbo engine. Um, it ran from about 2012 until 2018, and it got the podium several times during that time. This one, I have been staring at photos of this for a long time trying to figure out where the Prius is underneath there because it doesn't have a whole lot of uh, shared mm-hmm. panels or anything like that. I mean, it's it's buried somewhere underneath some really impressive looking bodywork. Um, at least the version that I'm looking at does not look like a Prius in any way. Prius in name only. And yeah, I guess so. It's a, it's a really, you know what, I'm not a Prius fan, you know, just in general, but uh, this one I would drive. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think just about anybody in our listening audience would drive this one. If you if you look at the Prius GT or the Super GT Prius, uh, you will be inspired by this. Now, um, all right, just real quick. I was watching a little bit of the Roadkill Nights footage, you know, some of the, the drag events, and one of the, the things that they had paired up was a, uh, I think it was a Dodge Dart Demon and a Prius. And you might think, okay, well, what, are they, what are they doing with this? Well, the Prius was actually powered by a Dodge Hellcat crate engine. And not just the Hellcat engine, because you might think, well, maybe the Dart Demon still has a chance against this lightweight Prius, right? Not just that, but they had upgraded the 707-horsepower Hellcat engine to, uh, well, they've upgraded it by adding a 4.5-liter Whipple supercharger to that. So it's it's achieving 1,000 horsepower in yeah. a Prius. That just falls into that Y yep. category. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> So this is not your, you know, this is not for fuel economy or anything like that, right? But but it's it's funny as hell to watch this yeah, Prius uh, drag, and it, of course it just it destroys the Dodge Demon <laughs> right off the line. I mean, it, it's within ten feet. You're going to see who's going to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's that quick. It's like it's just gone. And it's it's unbelievable to watch. So um, again, this is that drag racing event in uh, in Pontiac. Of course, this rear wheel drive has a Ford nine inch rear end. It's got you know it's it's completely stripped out underneath. It's just yeah. a Prius body, really. Yeah. But uh, but it's it's just funny to watch. All right, next one on the list, and we're getting toward the end here um, before we get to our surprises, and we'll probably have to let's let's speed through these last couple so that we can get to our, our extras. Okay. Okay. Let's let's do it that way. So the uh, there's the 1976 Terrell. P34. Actually, this is called the uh, the Project 34. So that's uh, if you want to look it up that way. Consider this the um, uh, the most unusual F1 car you've probably ever seen. Is, <laughs> that's the way I'm going to say it. Um, this is the the six wheeler, and I think a lot of people can also picture this one in their mind. This is the the six wheeler that has I think it has Elf printed on the side. A lot of people can picture that as well. Mm. Um, I think Elf was like a fuel or something at the time, wasn't it? I think Some, so. Something like that. They're a long time, and but it was F one too. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah it was, through the two thousands or late nineties. Yeah, yeah. I think of sponsorship, or you'd see banners, or at least you yeah. know some kind of signage for those. Um, this is a car that was designed by a guy named Derek Gardner, who is actually better known as a transmission designer up until the point that he met Ken Tyrell in 1970, and he convinced him to start designing cars. And he did so, um, I think around 1970, they started building cars in, uh, God, I think it was just like a, a private garage, maybe even, it could have even been Derek Gardner's garage for all I know. I think they built the first one there. This one has a, a V8 engine. It's a Ford Cosworth engine, um, DFV engine, which stands for double four valve engine. Um, of course, the reason behind this, and a lot of people will wonder why why bother with extra wheels. You think that would just be extra trouble, and you know, it seems like 
it just it has a real unusual look. It doesn't look like it would be an advantage of any kind, but the advantage comes in increased braking power, which I guess makes sense. You get more uh, braking surface with, um, you know, an additional two wheels, you're able to, to have an additional two brakes, so you're able to you know go harder into the corners uh, when you need to, and, and that's exactly what they did. And it raced; it was sort of successful. I mean, it had um, it raced during uh, I think it was 1976 and 1977, or and it retired after 1977. Uh, but it did it kind of it kind of won over fans. It, it initially, you know, fans laughed at it, thought it was kind of ridiculous, and it still looks ridiculous a little bit. But it did win people over. It, it ran in 30 races. It had it had only one win, uh, which was in the Swedish Grand Prix, uh, and that's when Jody Schechter drove that car. Um, and then uh, it had one pole position, and for get this, three times it set the fastest lap in a race, which is pretty impressive, really, yeah. for a brand new vehicle. Out of the gate like that. Sure. A lot more history on that one that we're not going to get to right now. <laughs> um, then there's the uh, number nine, the Rolls-Royce Corniche. Now, we've done a lot of car stuff episodes on Rolls-Royce, and you know all about the uh, uh, the the luxury and the, you know, the opulence of the, of the Rolls-Royce, and that's not what this one is all about. This is a, a different animal altogether. This right. is my weirdest one on the list. Is it really? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you like, do you like this one a lot? Do you, I mean, do you it's enjoy not that this? I like it. It's just... It's just strange. Yeah. And it would a, be strange seeing it race across the desert. This was a, a 1981 entry to the uh, the Paris to Dakar uh, event. And I don't know how many years it raced, but um, it's not entirely a Rolls Royce. Underneath, there's um, a Toyota, uh, Toyota Land Cruiser chassis, and it's powered by something uh, uh, quite a bit different as well. Yeah, it's Chevy engine. Yeah, Chevy. V8. A five, yeah, big V8. It's got a, a 5.7 liter small block Chevy V8. And uh, again, I've you know they thought it was a joke again, but um, gosh, I mean it did pretty well in the standings. I think it was as high as thirteen in the mm-hmm. standings. Is that right? It got to thirteenth. Not too bad, really. And it's a it's a grueling race, a very difficult race to to make. And and to consider that you're in a Rolls Royce, I mean, it's funny to think of because you know you think of it being a luxury vehicle, and and we've talked about this on car stuff so many times. We talked about the Phantom. We talked about uh, there was a guy who his name. Uh, it's actually the episode is, is called the Man Who Became a Paint which is, I think it's an intriguing title. You have to look into that one to see what that's all about. And we did another one about a um, spiritual healer or a spiritual leader, I guess, the spiritual leader Rajneesh, uh, who had 93 Rolls Royces uh, that were paid for by his followers. We did a story about Uh that uh, a long time ago. I think it's the the 93 Rolls Royces of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, which was done in 2016. Uh, It's a strange story. And... uh, (laughs) There's, there's a lot of funny lines in that one. But <laughs> you'll have to listen to that one to, to get the full story. But it's a funny idea, isn't it, that, you know, that, that this is such a luxury car and it's known for its opulence and, and, and the, uh, the dollar amounts that are thrown around with this. And, you know, it's supposed to be like a prestigious thing. But here it is blazing across the desert. And I'm sure that inside there it was uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a comfort trip by any means. It's not like you're in the lap of luxury. No, no, not, like, not at all. Uh, not like in one of the... Uh, it's can- hardly a Rolls Royce. It's not like in mm. one of the Cannonball Run movies or something where it's, you know, a, ro- a race car underneath and, you know, it's a race car inside as well. It's yeah. got, you know, it has to have all that as well. Yeah. I love the name too, Jules. Yeah, <laughs> Jules. Do you name your car, Scott? I do not. Have you ever named a car? They kind of develop names over time. Is that right? But I don't go, I don't name it intentionally. It just kind of... Let me ask you this. Do you name it or does somebody else name it for you? Because I've seen I, that happen as well. It happens. It, it, 
sometimes someone else will name it, and then I'll the car will take that name. But normally, it's a name I come up with. Does your current car have a name? It does. Yeah. Can you? It's can Jane. You? <laughs> okay, Jane. Yeah. Is that right? We're plain Jane. Is that right? Oh, yeah. plain Jane. Okay. Well, it's just Jane. I call it Jane. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Plain Jane. And I've had the Silver Bullet. Mm-hmm. Was my first car. Mm-hmm. That's it was funny because four-cylinder I... Honda Civic hatchback. Okay. Silver, so silver bullet. That's good. Yeah. That's good. You know, it's funny. I would bet a lot of people, I, I just never even think about this, but I would bet a lot of people name name their car. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to hear some people, you know, some of our listeners write in with the names of their car or cars that they've had in the past and, and what type of car it was and maybe even, you know, short description why. All right. Number 10 on the list. We're finally at number 10. And then uh, we've got, we do have two things. So hang on after the list. I'm just going to go through this kind of quickly. Although I will tell you that this one, you know what? Number 10, you know what? I'm going to do something unusual here. I'm going to le- I'm going to actually change the order up of our show here right as we're talking. Oh, curveball. Just, just a little bit. Not not too much. Because number 10 relates to what I'm going to talk about as a surprise for you later. So okay. I do want to bring out one that I uh, did not find on the list that I think was really unusual. And I shared, I shared with the, this one with you earlier. It was the, uh, the NASCAR Tucker um, in... This is the, the, another strange one, but in 1950, hey, again with 1950, oh, 1958 was the, uh, the Citroen. 1950, um, a, in the Poor Man's 500, which I think is a great name for a NASCAR <laughs> race, it's so funny. The Poor Man's 500 at Canfield Speedway in Ohio, um, a Tucker, an actual Tucker, participated in a NASCAR race. It's, it's believed to be car number 1023. If you go to the registry, you can find out all about car number 1023, and I, I'll spare you the, uh, um, the extra keystrokes on that one. I've already done it. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. The photos appeared in Hemmings, and uh, I think it started somewhere around 2008 when they kind of you know, posed the idea that you know, this might have happened, and here's a photo of a car that looks like a NASCAR. Did this really happen? And, you know, there's a lot of discussion and back and forth. And then eventually the son of the man that ran the, the car in the NASCAR race rode in with another photograph of his dad standing next to the same car on the same car lot. So um, proof positive that, you know, he definitely did run this thing. In 1950, again, car number 1023, and this was uh, actually the photo was taken in the Mount Oliver section of Pittsburgh. Um, I think it's um, – Looks like Mount Oliver, um, you know, Mount Oliver. It's a used car dealer uh, lot that it's on, of all things. I mean, and and I'll tell you about cars, car number 1023. This is unusual. This is one that was actually lost in a fire later on. And then it was, this is the strangest part. It was buried under the garage of the Tucker Automobile Club of America's founder in Florida. So if you want to know where it is, it's underneath a slab of concrete in Florida, Un, you know, just buried it. It mm-hmm. will always be there. They know that they know where that one is. It's it's gone. Obviously, never to come back. There was it was unsalvageable. It was just a a twisted mass of rusted metal at that point. But an unusual unusual thing. And if you go to Hemmings dot com, you can see photographs of the uh, the NASCAR Tucker. It's got the number twelve painted on the side there, and it looks like Joe Nagel Junior Motor Sales is the name printed on the side. So, thought that was interesting. The driver's name was Joe Marola, and he was out of Braddock, Pennsylvania. That's cool. So, yeah, you can check that out if you want to. That's, uh, I thought that was an interesting little bit of history. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And number 10 on the actual list, which leads to... The surprise. Well, I don't want you to look at that yet. Okay. Not, not quite I'm not yet. going to. I just want your reaction when you see that. <laughs> All right. So uh, number 10 on this list is Jungle Jim's Chevrolet Vega wagon. Now, another wagon, a second wagon to make the list. And uh, I see why. I mean, I see why it's unusual to, you know, have a couple of wagons out there on the, on the racetrack. This one is a drag car, a drag car. So it's a little different. And probably a lot has to do with the weight distribution of the car, mm-hmm. I would guess. Right. Um you know drag racing. I mean, how unusual is it to see a, a a wagon on the track? We don't see it anymore. Maybe I'm not sure how common it was back then. I mean, I know in the late '60s and '70s, um, like you, you wanted your car to look. You try to be outrageous, exaggerated, and weird, and so you try to be. You want it to beat the other cars too, but you also wanted to beat the other cars in a car that was unique in yeah. some way. You gotta be a little crazy, right? You yeah. gotta be a little, little outrageous, yeah. a little different, a little unique. All right, well, that's coming up in just a second, too, so okay. hang on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the thing is that wagons actually had a kind of a, a surge of interest, as they say, in in the NHRA pro stock class because of the 
mass at the back of the of the wagon, which actually added to the traction of the vehicle. So when you compare that to a sedan or a coupe of the day, um, it wasn't necessarily it was it was an advantage over a sedan or a coupe if you look at it that way, right? So think about you know going back to uh, you know that Volvo 850 wagon in the the touring car championship. Mm-hmm. Similar idea. You know, there's there's probably a, a lot of the same reasons. There's, there's yeah. a bit of advantage. I mean, and once you're at speed, again, there's a, a little bit of an aerodynamic advantage as well. So one of the craziest cars that was out there was uh, was Jungle Jim Lieberman, and he raced in a 1972 Chevy Vega wagon. And of, of all things, the Chevy Vega. A lot of people you know laugh at the Chevy Vega because it was supposed to be more about economy than it was about performance, of course. And, you know, it doesn't matter in NHRA Pro Stock. You just throw an engine. It's just a shell yeah. at that point, really. I mean, there's nothing underneath it that is is stock, really, outside of, you know, just the, the outward appearance. Similar to the Prius. It's a, more of a visual thing. Exactly. It's just fun to see that car beat whatever's next to it. Exactly. But he could he could stuff a giant V8 under the hood of this thing mm-hmm. and make it work. And, and that's exactly what it did. It had a short wheelbase because it was a, a compact wagon. Um, it had a lightweight design, you know, but but weighted in the right way. You know, it was weighted exactly where he needed it. So, you know, it was actually a, a strong performer. And, you know, some a few interesting things about him. Now, he, he Jungle Jim was, he was like a... He was an, one of the early guys that that was like really I, I would call him flamboyant, but I don't mean that. I mean he was more like a, a promoter, like a showman. Yeah, like he would make a big deal at the track. About, he was a personality. Yeah, he was. Character. He was definitely a personality at the at the track. He was really a character. I mean and, his Jungle Jim. Yeah, was he was his name. And he yeah Jungle Jim. He was. He, he ended up dying fairly young. He died at the age of thirty one. He was killed in a uh, uh, sports car. He had a a Corvette. And I think he was in Pennsylvania, I believe, at the time. He went around a corner too fast and head-on with a bus, mm. of all things. He hit a bus head-on. I mean, that's what you hear about, like, he could get hit by a bus. Yeah. Who knows? 31 years old. He's kind of at the peak of his game, or we think he was at the peak. of it. He might have been better. You know, you never know. Uh, but he was only 31 years old, made quite a um, an impression on everybody. But... I said that he was kind of a showman, right? Right. All right. So I have, um, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm doing here. I'm going to slide a piece of paper over to you. And I have stapled a piece of white paper on top of this. So Kurt has never seen what I'm about to show him. He might already know. He kind of has a knowing look. But to go along with the uh, the Jungle Jim story, we have to include one other character that uh, Jungle Jim had with him on the track. Can I guess? Or you, you want me to look first? Do you want to guess? I want to guess. Okay. It was the, was, is it his wife? Uh, it's his girlfriend. Yeah, girlfriend. Okay. His girlfriend. Yeah. Her name? I don't know her name. Oh, her name was Jungle Pam. Now, Jungle Pam. Okay, so I'm <laughs> Jungle Pam Hardy. Now, Jungle Pam Hardy. Yep, there she is. I'm, uh, I'm showing him some photos of Jungle oh, Pam yeah. Hardy and what Jungle Pam Hardy's job was on the track. Now, she was something that they call a backup girl or a sta- you know a staging girl. And I'm not trying to be uh, derogatory in any means, and I'm, I'm going to try to be very careful about this. I'm, I've, I am. But uh, she was a rather busty person, buxom. Mm-hmm. Um, good-looking lady. She was a good-looking lady, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was his girlfriend. He kind of, I think he just met her like cruising by her one day on the sidewalk or some some story like that. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. She toured with him for a while. Um, I think you know she was like she was pretty. Actually, she was, she was like pretty valuable to the team in that she did more than a lot of people think. She would come out in these extremely skimpy uni- you know outfits. I'll call them a uniform, but it was an outfit. Um, go-go boots, you know, really tiny little shorts and a, a you know halter top and. You got to remember the the era. Um, you have to look at the photograph to see what's going on. But um, she would come out and um, in these outfits drive the guys, you know, at the track crazy. And you know, like he, her job was to back him up. You know, once he had done his burnout, 
And she would also, uh, <laughs> she would very seductively bend over and check for fluid leaks under the car and add fluids and, you know, make sure that, do final checks, right? But she did a lot more than what people give her credit for. She actually was the one who packed his parachutes. Uh, she would do uh, more than you knew behind the scenes, you know, as far as like, you know, clean up and engine work. And she would do all, she was hands-on. Mm-hmm. She really was. And, and not a lot of people knew that she was hands-on in the pit, in the pit area. Uh, she was definitely like a pinup type girl, um, you know, that they, they loved to photograph her. Jungle Jim knew that, and that's why she was there exactly. And other teams copied that. They they brought someone like that with them as well because Jim was stealing all the attention from every other driver. No matter how he did in the race, <laughs> no matter how poorly he was performing, everybody was looking at his team and his name was getting out there because of Jungle Pam. So he knew how valuable Pam was, not only for, you know, because she was she was actually helping on the team, but also the promotional aspects of this whole thing. You know, it were great, and they worked really well together as a team. They had a great respect for each other, I know. Um, you've heard, I've heard her talk about him. Um, you know, of course, he, his life was cut short, you know, during their relationship, I believe. I don't, I don't know if they were broken up at that point. I, I think it was, it was really close to that time when they met, I know, mm-hmm. when he passed away. So I don't know if they, you know, they had already moved on or not. But she still had uh, a lot of respect for him and uh, always did. And uh, it was just, it was a good relationship. Now, um, again, take a, look at, take a look at photographs of Jungle Jim and Jungle Pam if, if you want to get it. It's, it's kind of a good thing. You laugh a, a bit about it. It's, re- it's really funny. But the last thing that I want to bring up, and I know we've gone a long time here. This is a long podcast. But I want to tell you something that I found pretty unusual. The, uh, going through and, and finding these Jungle Pam images and, and kind of learning about her, I saw some articles that said or there were some, that there were some modern versions of backup girls right now. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a resurgence of that right now happening, and uh, and it's kind of a popular thing it's at a local thing, racetracks. Yeah, for sure. I didn't know that. I'm not one to hang out at the racetracks. Maybe you've already, you've seen this in person. Yeah, I feel like it was even back then. I feel like it was just kind of part of the show, even when it was a like a street racing type thing back in like the, maybe sure. the 50s or. The women also played that part in the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Grease before. Well, so. well yeah, but here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, but you know what? I here's the thing, and I'm not just talking about you know the 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 um, um, oh the rockabilly looking person that you know a girl that that throws the green flag yeah. you know and jumps up and down you know wearing her shorts or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like a full on backup girl at a drag racing competition, just like Pam Hardy was. Yeah. That you know does, has other duties, but you know dresses like in, in go-go boots, dresses like they're in the late sixties. Uh, they have that look uh, intentionally, and they know the role they're playing. They're they're just there for the uh, you know the promotional aspect of the whole thing. And I'm sure it's fun. It's got to be a lot of fun to get, you know to do this. If you want if you want to get an idea of what I'm talking about, you can uh, look up articles about the backup girl or the comeback of the backup girl or. There's a video online called um, Southeast Gasser's Backup Girls 2017 season. It's a brand new version. You'll see, uh, you know, women from this year that are doing this. I mean, and and before you write in hostile letters or whatever, these are women of all ages, sizes, shapes, different styles of dress. I mean, it's girlfriends, it's wives, it's daughters, it's anyone really that that wants to do this. 
And it's it's actually, it looks like a lot of fun. It really does. It, it seems like, you know, those rockabilly events where they have, you know, rat rods and things like that, and music. And mm-hmm. it looks like the women that are participating in that as well that are doing this. It's just that similar, similar kind of feel in a lot of ways. Um, there are Facebook pages. There's Pinterest pages. Um, of course, there's articles on hot rodder sites and drag racing sites. It's it's really it's kind of a neat nostalgic thing that's uh, that I think is is um, um, it, it's it's taking grip and and I I kind of like it. I like that I like yeah. the trend. It gives you that feel that uh, that old time feel. Yeah, something about the the cars back then too. Just they were more wild and out of control. You can hear the. You know the supercharger whining and everything, and that's the thing. The fuel can... was coming out, and yeah, it was just to me the the cars of that era and I, the whole spectacle of it is just more raw and and just it's just better as a spectator sport. I mean, it's fun to watch the top fuel dragsters fly down the track, but it's so controlled and everything's dished out in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you... those cars had some. Like just unbridled power and well, you were sharing. You shared with me a video recently of uh, it was a drag racing documentary. I guess we'll call it. I don't know what it was called, but um, it was from the late '60s in Indianapolis mm-hmm. um, at the national event. And oh my gosh, I think it was a Hearst sponsored thing because Hearst appeared everywhere. Yeah, in, they were in thrown video, in a but, few times. But it was <laughs> it was film. Obviously, it was you know the old film, and it had that that alone gives it a great texture feel. But the cars and the people and the dress and the you know the way it's narrated, uh, just everything about that piece was was unbelievable. It was really really cool. I I loved watching that, and you know the music. It's of course it's original music that was scored you know just for that that documentary, um, very much of the era, very much of the late sixties, early seventies. I think it was late sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. The the just the raw power of those cars. I mean, a lot of them are. You know, if if they they screw up, it's in a wheel stand, and you know that's. Or a lot of them were drifting over into the other lane and bumping the other car. And yeah, um, and the just, engine was just right there in front of them, um, and it would be you know losing it, parts as it flew down the track. Beautiful cars. I mean, it's just unreal. It's so cool to watch that watch that old stuff. But yeah. Um, but I tell you, Kurt, I think we've probably exhausted this list. I know we've got a uh, uh, we had a long list to get through, and uh, I know we've we've probably gone way too long on this uh, this podcast, as we always say at the end. But <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, if you want to check us out on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where we are Car Stuff HSW on all three of those. And uh, of course, tell your friends. You know, uh, we're trying to gain listeners as well all the time. So I guess that's about it for me, Kurt. How about you? Uh, that's it for me. Anything else? All right. I guess we will uh, see you next time. And who knows? Maybe Ben will be back. Maybe. And thanks for listening, everyone. Car Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.